Well, I want to begin by saying thank you for the Ministry of Music. Uh, I have requested that, and uh, it certainly ministered to me. I love that uh, particular song and uh, the way that it is uh, performed. So, thank you. As we study the book of Philippians, we are brought to the prayer that the Apostle Paul offers on behalf of the Philippians. I wonder, how would you like to be remembered when you are apart from your friends and loved ones? Perhaps a card, a phone call, a gift? Well, Paul remembers the Philippians in the time in which they are apart by praying for them. I know that some of the people that have moved uh, recently, uh, we think of the Dixons, uh, we think of the Roys, uh, how uh, many times they uh, send us back prayer requests, still appreciating our prayers for them. One of the most effectual, beneficial, helpful ways that we can think fondly and remember those that are not in our immediate presence is to pray for them. So Paul tells the Philippians of his prayers for them for three reasons. First, so they be encouraged to know that indeed they are on Paul's heart and mind. He speaks of his unfeigned love for them, his sincere devotion, his desire to be with them. Secondly, he prays so that they might know how to pray for themselves, that in hearing these requests, they would then take it to heart that if these are the kind of things that Paul is praying for, then they ought to pray for these things as well. And then thirdly, so that God would be praised as this prayer is answered. So there would be a awareness on the Philippians' part that the spiritual progress that they are making in their lives is due to the grace of God and the prayers of God's people. It's important for us that we give praise and glory to God as we recognize what he is doing in our lives. So Paul prays, he says, with joy and confidence as he thinks about the Philippians. The basis of that joy and confidence is given to us in verse 6. He says, and I am sure of this. There is his confidence expressed. He is sure about the spiritual progress and well-being of the Philippians. He is confident as he enters into prayer for them that God is going to hear and answer their prayers and that they are going to be kept strong and spiritually healthy. The confidence comes from the next statement in verse 6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul is confident that the one who began a good work, that is God, is going to complete that work by the day of Christ. That they are a work in progress, if you will, and God is going to bring into completion his purpose for saving them. This work began at their salvation. It will be completed at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, and in the interval period, there is going to be continual progress in growth in their relationship to God and to each other. It is with that confidence 
in the working of God that Paul prays for the Philippians. But note that that confidence doesn't bring apathy. Paul doesn't just sit back in indifference and say, well, God is going to work, and therefore I'm just going to sit back and watch God work in the lives of the Philippians, but rather it gives him the motivation to pray. Knowing that God is at work, knowing that God began this work, it was salvation is solely of God, brings him confidence now to pray and believe that God is going to continue to achieve these great things in the life of the Philippians. So too with us. We are to see the importance of cooperating, if you will, with the Holy Spirit. Cooperating with God. The Word of God tells us that we are not to quench the Spirit of God. We are not to resist the Spirit of God, but we are to cooperate with the Spirit of God. And one way in which we cooperate with the Spirit of God is through our prayers, through our expressed dependence and need of God to be at work in our lives and the lives of others. And so Paul offers this prayer. This morning I'm going to focus in this section in just a few verses. I'm not going to look at the whole section. I'm going to look at verses 9 through 11. And what we're going to focus upon are the requests that Paul makes for the Philippians in prayer. The requests that Paul makes for the Philippians in prayer. Notice with me the text, verses 9 through 11. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, <coughs> excuse me, and so be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So this morning, the request that Paul makes on behalf of the Philippians. The first request that Paul makes is that the Philippians' love for God and others would continually increase. That the Philippians' love for God and others would continually increase. Notice verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. It is not that the Philippians are without love. That is obvious that they are people of love, but rather that it would increase, or as it's found in our text, abound more and more. That your love would increase, would abound more and more. The object of that love is not stated, it is implied. It is love for God and love for each other. For notice, verse 9, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more, and we could easily supply these words for God and each other. Right? The love that needs to abound is a love for God and for each other. The object is supplied. And then it is described with knowledge and all discernment. Specifically, Paul prays that their love would increase with respect to knowledge and to discernment. What does that mean? Well, knowledge is the word for complete or full knowledge. Uh, literally, in the Greek, the word for knowledge is gnesko, to know. 
And epi is a preposition meaning upon. And so a literal translation would be knowledge upon knowledge upon knowledge upon knowledge. An increasing, abundant, overflowing knowledge. But this word is reserved for knowledge of God and knowledge of his word. It's an experiential knowledge of God and his word. A knowledge that begins in the head, if you will, and flows and reaches to the heart. It is a a knowledge that produces an experiential relationship of love to God and to our brother and sister in Christ. Discernment is the application of knowledge. Thus Paul is praying that they would continue to grow in knowledge of God and his truth along with the ability to apply that knowledge to life's situation. The question then arises, why does Paul speak of it increasing in love? We don't usually think of knowledge and discernment as necessarily producing or characterized by love. What is the relationship here that Paul is praying for? Well, love is a strong motivating factor in all of our actions. So too, love for God is a strong motivating factor in our obedience to him. Often, as Christians, we know what the Bible says. And we even see in our lives situations in which we need to live out the word. Okay, so we know what it says, and we have the discernment to apply it. We can see in certain instances the choices that we ought to make if we're going to be obedient to the word of God. However, we fail to follow through on those choices. We don't actually do what God would have us to do, even though we know better. And even though we know in this particular instance it's wrong to do it, we choose not to do it. Why? Well, because we don't want to do it. And why don't we want to do it? Answer is because we love someone or something more than God. At that particular instance, we would rather do that which is opposed to God than that which serves God. What is lacking is our love, our devotion for God. So Paul is praying that their love and devotion would increase along with their knowledge and the ability to apply. So let me give you a a practical example since that's kind of nebulous. I have a Judy Galley's permission to use this illustration. I've been talking with Judy the last couple of weeks, and I've been having some wonderful conversations with with Judy during this time in which her husband Jack is extremely, extremely sick. He's very ill, very, very weak, after having gone through just an extensive surgery, uh, removing a number of organs and portions of organs. As I was praying with Judy over the phone, 
One of the things that I prayed concerning Judy was, I prayed with Judy that God would give her grace and stamina in caring for Jack. That uh, certainly can be difficult. Uh, There's a lot to do. After I uh, finished my prayer, she said this to me. She said, when I married Jack, I took a vow of faithfulness in sickness and in health. There's knowledge, okay? I know that when I got married, I took a vow to be with him in sickness and in health. Her next statement was, now is a time of sickness. There's the discernment. There's the application. There's the, this is what it says, and here's how it applies, okay? I'm going to be faithful in sickness and in health. Now is the time of sickness. There's the discernment. And then she went on to say this. I love him, and it's a joy to care for him in this way. There's the motivation. That's exactly what this passage is talking about. That our knowledge would increase. That we know what God would have us to do. That the discernment would increase so that we can apply it to the specific situation in life. And then that the love would be present to do it. That there would be the desire to follow through and to do what God would have us to do because we love him. His commandments are not burdensome when we love him. When we love him. Secondly, Paul prays that the Philippians in love would follow through in making and living out the best decisions. Paul prays that the Philippians in love would follow through in making and living out the best decisions. The purpose of the knowledge and discernment was that they would follow through on making the best decision. Notice verse 10. So that, so that, with this result in mind, if you will, for the purpose that you may approve what is excellent. The word for approved here is referring to an informed decision that is reached after a great deal of consideration. So you think about your choices. You think about what you are going to do. You think about how you're going to live. And as you think about the choices that you would approve what is excellent or that you would make the best choice. Excellent is referring to making decisions when there are a variety of choices and choosing things of greater importance, value, or worth. It is having decided to follow Christ, having decided to live your life for Him, having decided to do what he would have us to do because we love him, now making some choices that are the best choices in light of that knowledge. Again, let me help you with an illustration. 
Let's go back and consider Judy and Jack Galley once again. Number one, she knows that marriage is for sickness and in health. Number two, she understands that this is a time of sickness. And she knows that she needs to care for him. Third, she has the love to care for him. And she finds it a joy and delight to care for him. Well, that's all well and good. But now that brings us to the next step. The step that's being talked about in our passage. The wisdom, the knowledge, the discernment now to make the best decisions and follow through. So, Judy has decided that she is going to care and love and minister to Jack. But now there are a series of decisions that have to be made. A series of choices. Choices between good things. So, how is she going to spend her time? Is she going to clean the house or sit by his bedside? And talk with him. What foods is she going to give him? And how often? And to what amount? What degree? When he is tired and she wants to encourage him, is she to say, press on, work through it? Or is it a time to say, you need to rest and relax and recuperate? You see, even in that desire, knowing I want to do what's best, knowing that I want to do what's right, knowing that I've made the commitment, there are still many, many questions to be answered as you follow through. Paul is praying for these minor, in the sense of subset decisions of, okay, I'm going to care for Jack, but now what does, that ja- what does that care look like? We need wisdom to be able to make those decisions. Why? Well, the goal of the prayer. What is the goal? What is, quote, unquote, success? When have we made the right choices? We are demonstrating that love in the right way. When we can be glad in what we're doing. Well, let's look at verse 10. The goal of the prayer. There are a number of things to keep in mind. First, The goal of the prayer is that Paul wants the Philippians to live a life that is authentic. Notice verse 10. So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure. To be pure. The word pure literally means to be without wax. To be without wax. Now what does that mean? You have to understand the culture of the day. Vases would be made, pottery would be sold in the marketplace. And uh, what would happen is that sometimes these, these potteries would have 
hairline fractures in them. Uh, they would have cracks that were difficult to see. You know, not the big jagged crack, but the very fine crack, but just enough crack that they wouldn't hold water. And so what unscrupulous pottery makers would do is if they had such a pottery, they'd fill it with hot wax to seal up that crack. And that seal would hold just enough for you to test it once and take it home, and then soon it's going to leak. So the word means without wax. It means to be sincere, genuine, real. And the word that is most common today is authentic. Authentic. So that we don't just talk about loving God. We don't just talk about serving God, but we actually do it. That there is words that have actions that are associated with them. It's easy to say praise the Lord. It's quite another to live a life that actually praises the Lord. It's easy to talk about service. It's quite another to actually serve. It's easy to know what the right choice is in many situations. But to actually follow through and make the right choice is an entirely different matter. Far, far too often, people know what the right thing is to do, but don't choose to do it anyway. So Paul prays for an authentic faith, genuine, real, that don't just profess, but actually do. The second goal is for the Philippians to live a life free from guilt and regret. A life lived free from guilt and regret. It's found in this word in the ESV, blameless. So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless. Blameless here does not mean sinless. It means free from guilt and free from regret. It's a word that is found only three times in the entire New Testament. Listen to how it's translated in Acts. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards God and man. That's our word for blameless here. A clear conscience. That's why I say without guilt. Without guilt. The joy of following through and making decisions that you know to be right and then doing it is that you have the opportunity to live a life that's free of guilt. When you know what is right and you choose to do the wrong, it results in guilt. It results in a conscience that convicts and it is a huge issue in our society today. It lies behind the whole problem of self-esteem. Because people don't feel good about themselves. And why don't they feel good about themselves? Because they know they made the wrong choice. And years later, they are guilt-ridden. Their conscience tells them, I shouldn't have done it. 
I shouldn't have lived that way. The recipe of a life filled with guilt is a lack of self-esteem, knowing you could have done better, living life differently. The second element of this word is not only free from guilt, but free from regrets. The first idea is inward-looking, our conscience. The second is outward-looking, thinking upon the effect that our choices have on others. So, loving God and loving others. The effect of our choice on God and others. Following through on the illustration of Judy and Jack, the first is that she would make choices that she personally can live with. So that, let's say, the worst happens. Let's say Jack dies. And now all of a sudden, Judy's left alone, and Judy has to think about these last days that she had with Jack. How is she going to feel about those last days? Is she going to be comforted or guilt-ridden? Is she going to feel good or horrible? Is she going to be satisfied that I did my best, I knew what I should do, and I did it? Or is she going to come to the conclusion all along, you know, I, I know that wasn't the right thing to do. I, I know that, that that's not what I should have chosen, but there were all these pressures, there were all these desires. We want to live our lives so that we don't have guilt. And we don't have regrets. Regrets have other people in view. That is the outcome of those choices. How those choices that she is now making are going to affect Jack and her children. And even the church, as we're using her as an example today, as we make choices, they don't just impact us. They impact other people, our families, our friends, our church. And we don't want to be full of guilt. And we don't want to be filled with regret. So Paul prays for them to have the knowledge, the discernment, and the love to follow through so that they don't have guilt and they don't have regret. Third, Paul wants the Philippians to live a life that is filled with righteous deeds or good works. Verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. The righteousness there is good deeds, good works. That the choices that we are making are going to result in our doing good. That we have helped others. That we have benefited others. That we have lived righteously. That we have done what is right. And then lastly, Paul wants the Philippians to live a life that glorifies God. Notice verse 11. 
to the glory and praise of God. So it's many faceted. This idea of making the right choices, the benefits that accrue from a love of God and others that is informed with knowledge, applied through discernment, and then followed through upon with the resulting benefits of being authentic, living a life free from guilt and regret, of being filled with good deeds, and then lastly, to the glory and praise of God. To live a life that in the end, God is glorified and God is praised. Why? First, God is praised as a result of recognizing his work. This all was premised upon Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will complete it to the day of Christ. The acknowledgement that the moment of change was the moment of salvation. And the progress in our faith is a result of the grace and goodness of God. This changing of life, this changing of direction, so that we're making decisions based on our love for God, not our love for ourselves, not for our love for sin, but for our love for God and making wise choices brings praise to God. And it brings glory to God. Glory to God. We talk about worship. Worship. Worship is an old English word that originally was pronounced worth-ship. W-O-R-T-H-S-H-I-P. Worth-ship. Worship is worth-ship. It is saying, Lord, you are worthy. Worthy of what? Worthy to receive honor and glory and praise. But how is that done? Not simply by saying, Lord, we praise you. Not simply by saying, Lord, we honor you. But in authenticity, honoring God by doing what he would have us to do. By not just calling him Lord, but making him Lord. Not just calling him God, but allowing him to be God. Allowing him to dictate our lives. Out of the motivation of we love him. We appreciate him. We desire him. Why do you think, now I've gone way beyond you know, my conversation with Jack and Judy, I'm milking this for all it's worth, but uh, why do you think Jack and Judy decided to make this vow in the first place? To be together. For better, for worse, in sickness and in health, to death do they part. Because they loved each other. 
and loving each other. They wanted to serve and help each other, benefit each other. It wasn't just selfish and about themselves. You see, what is unique about marriage is it's about the other person. And making choices not in our best interest, but in their best interest. And the best interest of others. Some of us were able to witness uh, Joshua and Faith just getting married yesterday. This desire to do what's in the best interest of each other. As we work through this text, it's talking about our best interest. Yes, live a life without regrets. Sure, live a life without guilt. Sure, who doesn't want to live that way? But also about other people. And ultimately, about the honor and glory and praise of God. Because he is seen as the fountain of all this goodness. He is the source of the wisdom that we make the best choices. He's the source of the impetus. He began the good work in us. We love him because he first loved us. And so God is glorified. Conclusion. First, we should have hope and confidence as we pray for one another because God who began a good work will complete it. As we think about one another, we we should have joy and delight because God is at work. God is at work. And because God is at work, we shouldn't just sit back and do nothing. We should pray. Realizing that it's of God. Okay? If, if these life-changing manifestations are going to be realized, it means that God's going to have to be at work in our lives. So we should be praying for one another in anticipation of what God is going to do. We should pray that our love for God and for each other would increase. Without that increase of love, we're not going to do what God would have us to do. Why are so many marriages in such trouble? Well, people say they fall out of love. They are not motivated any longer to obey the vows. They know what they should do. They see the circumstances in which they should do it, but they've lost the motivation. They've lost the desire. For whatever reason, no longer feel guilty, no longer have regrets, don't care about other people, aren't interested in the glory of God. Who knows? But, my, but I'm telling you, but the problem is that that commitment is no longer there. A commitment that we talk about as love. So it's absolutely essential that we grow in our love to God because if we don't, it doesn't matter what we know. And it doesn't even matter how wise we are in making the decision. Because if the love isn't there, we're going to make decisions that we know we shouldn't if we love something more. So it begins with praying 
that our love for God and others would increase. Increase along with that knowledge and discernment. And living our lives this way, we can live a life free from regret, a life that's free from harming others. We can live a life that is characterized by good deeds of righteousness, of goodness, and we can bring honor and glory to God. So let's pray for one another that our love would increase. A love that increases with respect to our knowledge and our discernment. So that, so that, we can live a life without regret. We can live a life without guilt. We can live a life that is not harmful but beneficial to others. A life that is characterized by righteous good deeds and a life that brings honor and glory to God. Let us pray. O Lord, help us. I pray that you increase our love, our devotion to you. It is so easy to speak of our love for you, but it's quite another to actually consistently be making choices in which that love is manifested, realized, seen, exhibited. Oh Lord, may that love transform our knowledge. Lord, may we not just understand what the right thing to do is, and may it inform our discernment so that we don't just understand what the right thing to do is, but understand that this is the situation to do it in. But then, Lord, to actually have the desire from your spirit to do what we know to be right. And, O oh Lord, as we make those choices, may we understand that it's going to mean that we don't feel guilty, we don't have regret, we're not sinning, but we're doing what is right and good, and we're bringing honor and glory to you. And Lord, may that be our desire, that you be praised in our lives. So Lord, please increase that love for you. In Jesus' name, amen.